a surprising feature of the healings of Jesus is that most of the time, the healings themselves are not really the point. The point of the healings is not the healings. So with that in mind, let's turn to Matthew 9 and begin with verse 1. Getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. So Jesus, he's been driven out of that Gentile region where he was last week, that place where people literally exorcised him from their land. And he's gone back across the Sea of Galilee, back to his own people, his own town, a place where he's, he's better known, back into Capernaum, back to Peter's house, perhaps. And behold, verse 2 says, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. So in, in contrast to that group of people last week who exorcised him from the town, here we have a different group of people whose expectations are high. They expect Jesus to do something, and for good reason. Last time he was there, many were healed, including those who were paralyzed. Chapter 4 says, his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, dot, 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 including paralytics, and he healed them. Then in chapter 8, the centurion's servant, remember, was paralyzed, and Jesus healed him. So we can deduce from this, clearly, Jesus is very good with backs. That's one of his things. But look what he deals with instead. Verse 2. When Jesus saw their faith, that is to say when he perceived and looked deeply into the essence of who they were, when he perceived the, the level of conviction that they had and particularly the way in which they trusted in him, he said to the paralytic, take heart. In that little word heart, you get the sense that he's looking deeply into this person. You search much deeper within than the way things appear, goes the song. He, he's seeing things that others might well have missed. And Jesus says to this paralyzed man, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, can we all agree that that is a very strange thing for him to say in a situation like this. Because it does not say this. It does not say, behold, some people brought to him a sinner lying on a bed of sin. And when Jesus saw their repentance, he said to the sinner, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. There is absolutely no hint in the text at all that, that this man wants to deal with his sins. He is described, one, as paralyzed, two, lying, three, on a bed, and four, paralyzed. And Jesus is good with backs. So he's not there to get forgiven, is he? Surely not. This has caused some scholars to postulate an idea. It doesn't take very much. And uh, if you should run into a scholar, I just warn you to be careful. It doesn't take a lot to get them going. They, they postulate the idea, obviously, Jesus can see that this dude cannot walk. So perhaps with this perception, Jesus perceives that there is a bigger problem going on here, and the root cause of his paralysis is sin. Forgive the sin, then he walks and deal with the problem at its roots. It's possible. Uh, we know that spiritual sin can manifest in physical ways, but it doesn't always. And in John chapter 9, Jesus says so. So in John 9, there's this blind man, and the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned? 
Was it him or was it his parents? Who done it? Who did the sin to make this man be blind? Was it his fault? And tell us. And Jesus just says, I don't know, he's just blind. That's all. So if you're suffering, and that suffering has not been healed, what I don't want to do is add to that suffering any burden of believing that it must be all your own fault. We don't find that in the text. There was no way of knowing from this passage what the the cause of the paralysis was, because the paralysis is not the point. To the man and his friends, and everyone else looking on, in the crowds, it looks like paralysis is the point, but it's not. It looks to everyone observing as though the physical condition is the the most important thing. But Jesus, who sees into this man's heart, perceives that there is something even bigger that needs to be dealt with. Clearly, there is something on this young man's heart that is far more pressing than anyone else knew. Perhaps uh, even he's been typecast in this role. He is paralyzed. He's the paralytic. Uh, In Greek, the paralytikon. It's a noun. It's become his identity, the paralytic. He's not John or Steve or Phil or Frank or whatever. He's the paralyzed bloke. Doesn't even need a name. Let's reduce him to his condition, shall we, and call him that. Surely the paralyzed bloke could only want one thing, and that is not to be the paralyzed bloke anymore. He couldn't possibly want anything else, could he? You know, like a human. Jesus sees that humanity, sees past that physical condition that has typecast him, sees there is something, in fact, more important to him, something more eternal, weighing down on this man's heart. Now, this is always true of all of us. Whatever it is that we have going on, good or bad, there is always something bigger. And so if you are someone who suffers and that has not been healed, do not let your illness become a barrier to those deeper issues. Don't assume that the only thing going on in your life is that thing, and if it could just go away, then everything would be fine. Remember as well that every single person in this series that gets healed will also get unhealed again. He gives sight to the blind. They can lose it again. Their eyeballs don't become bulletproof just because they've been healed by Jesus. Even if they keep their sight, they can still get sick or break their arm. They can still get COVID. Uh, They're not immune from suffering simply because they got healed. Every physical healing of Jesus Christ, no matter how marvelous, is temporary. Test the theory at the extremes. Lazarus gets raised from the dead, and he dies again, I presume. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure he'd have been on TV. Actually, not anymore. He'd have to have his own YouTube channel because he'd get cancelled. But uh, Jesus, I think, perceiving this biggest problem of all, this, this problem of the heart, he deals with it first. He forgives the sins. That's the big one. And in doing so, in forgiving the man's sins, he really upsets quite a few people there. Look at verse 3. 
Behold, some of the scribes, that is, professional students of the Jewish law, said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. I mean, we're cool with the healing stuff, that's all right, but the forgiving stuff, not so much. You've gone too far this time, Jesus, they say. And perhaps for very good reason. You may want to jump around a bit through the scriptures today and turn to Micah chapter 7, which is buried near the end of the Old Testament. Micah 7, one of those minor prophets that all come in a row. Who is a God like you? It's the very end kind of verses of Micah. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? The answer is no one. There's no one like God. No one can forgive sins except for God himself. It is not something that people can do in any eternal sense. And the prophet Micah goes on to talk about how God will have compassion on his people and and cast our sins into the depths of the sea and how God will be faithful to a promise written down to forgive. And it concludes with a reference to to Abraham and reminding us how God formed a covenant with Abraham and promised to Abraham one day to give him an offspring, an offspring who would bless the nations, who one day would appear and who would precipitate a moment when the forgiveness of sins would, would echo around the world, when he would come and he would free us from our sins by grace in fulfillment of that promise and then ready us for eternal life through a man. That is the promise. God will forgive sins and he will do it at a place and a time through a man. Wait for it, says this prophet Micah. So how dare you make this claim, say the scribes, the experts in that book. How dare you, Jesus, claim to be the fulfillment of the biggest promise in Scripture. How dare you? We don't care how good you are with backs. You're no good with sins, so shush. And by the way, they didn't say shush, at least very loud. Uh, They thought it, though. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, verse 4, another thing only God can do, read your mind, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? There's that word heart again. He's perceiving deeply how these people think, using that same ability on them. And as he reads their hearts, he judges them, which is something else only God can do. He forgives sins, he knows our thoughts, and he judges our minds and our hearts. And he says to them, you say, or think, I blaspheme, but I say, you're evil. Evil, he says, because you're denying me. And this is not about showing off. It's not, how dare you deny me and my personality or whatever. It's about his mission. He's saying, how dare you purport to get in the way of this promise that you've all been waiting for? And how dare you stand in the way of this young man's heartfelt desire to be restored in a deeper way than any of you ever thought he could possibly want. How dare you stand in the way of restoration and of grace. So what we have now is a showdown 
And I believe it is the showdown that this remark was designed to bring about. And Jesus says in verse 5, For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? It's a very clever question. And as they try and decide which one they're going to pick, he provides a third option. And he says, what if it is impossible, in fact, to pull them apart at all? What if these things are linked? What if we cannot pass out the physical from the spiritual, and they're all part of one thing? He goes on. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. In other words, he says, why don't I do both? Now, this is a much greater reveal, I think, than any of the other reveals that we've had in this series so far. It is the clearest. And if you pick up your bulletin, and we look together at the, the psalm today, Psalm 103, you'll see the point. Uh, if you're using the version of the Bible, it says at the top there, Psalm of David. That's a typo. It should say a Psalm of Redman, because uh, his musical version of this psalm, I think, is the the most popular Christian song in America for the last five years in a row. Uh, it's not a psalm of Redmond, bless the order of my soul. It's actually David and uh, Holy Scripture. Would you believe it? So uh, David, King David, descendant, by the way, of Abraham, but that's another sermon. Uh, David is, is struggling with sin, his own sin. He's struggling with physical ailment, and he's, he's wrestling with these issues of sin and, and the physical flesh and and, and marveling at God's ability to, to deal with these things. And he sings this psalm of hope, this song. He turns his prayer into a song, Psalm 103, and he sings, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sin and heals all your infirmities. God does both. He does both sin and backs. He does them both. And then David goes a stage further still to eternity. Starts joining some dots. And he says, therefore, if God can restore both the physical and the spiritual right here, right now, what else might he be able to do? Does he have authority over even eternity? Yes, says David. Verse 4, he saves my life from the pit, out of, out of death and out of hell. And he crowns you with mercy and loving kindness, with a new identity as one who is royal. Here's an image that we find multiple times in Scripture, this image of the crown or royalty or the throne in eternity. In eternity, a crown is placed upon us. Our, our heads, our very heads, become wreathed about with the victor's crown from the athletic games. The winner's medal, the trophy, is placed upon us, into our hands and on our, our heads. And this word crown just starts triggering off all of these images of eternity and salvation and hope. And of course, that victor's crown that was placed upon our heads was a crown that we were no more able to place upon our own heads than that young man was able to get up, pick up his mat, and walk. I think this is what Jesus is up to in this passage. This is what he's doing. 
I think Jesus is doing a physical thing to prove a spiritual thing, to prove an ability to do something even greater still. That in fact, all three of these things, the physical, the spiritual, and the eternal, are linked in him. And this eternity is yours by grace, as a gift. For that matter, you could have judgment instead. The psalm says, for those who reject him, Jesus brings judgment, just like the one that these scribes seem to be choosing with their evil thoughts. So back to Matthew. That's the background. Chapter uh, 9, verse 7. And he rose and went home. That's it. That's the healing because it's not the point. The crowds get the point, though. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. You see there in, uh, in verse 6, Jesus says, I'm going to do this physical thing so that you would know that I also have the authority to do this spiritual thing. And it is, in fact, the authority that makes the crowds marvel, not just the healing itself. They get it. They get that Jesus heals and forgives, that he restores, therefore, people in a much greater sense than anything any of us have ever seen before. So what do they do? They worship. Now, when I say they get it, was this a full-blown understanding of precisely who Jesus is as the pre-incarnate Logos and the second person of the Holy Trinity, fulfilling God's covenant promise to Abraham as expressed through the minor prophet Micah, tying in also his fulfillment of Psalm 103, all ultimately pointing to his second coming at the Perusia, whereupon we will be crowned or judged by grace alone. And then go a step further and, and ask ourselves, how was it that this young man got up out of the bed? Oh, wow, cool. That's how I also get saved as well, by doing nothing. Did they join all the dots? I doubt it. Probably not. Did they go a step further still and postulate where the judgment goes <laughs> that gets us this crown of righteousness? That, in fact, if it is God's crown of righteousness placed on our heads... Where is the cross that we should be on? Did they join all of those dots and see that Christ was bearing our sins to present us as righteous by grace alone, as a gift with a word? Probably not. They probably didn't do all of that. I can say that with confidence uh, because I've been studying it all week and I don't get it all. It just uh, is too big. It's just too much for me. I, 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 I love it. I've seen new things that I've never seen before, but I don't get it all. How, how could I? You would have a rubbish God or an amazing pastor if I got all of this. And you don't have an amazing pastor. You have an amazing God. Praise him. No one gets it all, but they get enough. Enough light bulbs go on to get the point. And the point is that the heel is a reveal of something bigger still. They get that much. And so they worship. With that in mind, I would just like to conclude with a couple of small words about ourselves. I want to say that if, if healing for you, or a lack of it, has become a source of great disappointment, and uh, suffering has maybe even become a badge of shame for you, 
And instead of being identified by a crown, you've become identified by uh, your suffering. And it's even given you a noun, perhaps. You are the lady in pain, the depressed kid, the failed man. We have a couple of things to say. Right, the first is take heart. We have a God who sees into the depths of our heart's desire. And uh, a God who can restore anything. A God whose methodology is consistently suffused with grace. It's always the same. What did the paralyzed man do to get up and walk? Nothing. It was a gift. From the God of gifts who promised precisely this kind of thing. God heals. Second, that whether he actually heals you in a physical sense, if that's your issue, or a mental sense today, whether he does that or not, this broken world is not our home. This is not where we belong. The, the healed and forgiven man gets up and then he goes home. But he's actually never truly home until Christ returns or calls him there. Only then is he really home. And so even if you are to be healed today in this church right now, in a physical or mental or spiritual sense, and you walk out of this building renewed, you will go back to a broken home. And on Monday morning, you'll go into a broken office. And you'll sit in your broken office for 50 weeks of the year so that you can take two weeks off and have a broken vacation instead. And every Sunday, you'll come and worship in a broken church because everything we have is glued to the surface of a broken world. And that will remain the case until Christ returns or calls us home. Then, we will be perfectly restored. There will be no more sin. It has been cast into the sea, and the sea is no more. There will be no more tears of pain just comfort and, and glory and beauty and the presence of God. And what we know is this, that for those of us in Christ Jesus, this is guaranteed because every heal is designed to reveal that point. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do ask that if anyone here present or watching at home is indeed suffering, or we are the carer for someone who has years of unhealedness in their life. God, would we not be reduced to that as our noun? But uh, Lord, would you restore us in a physical sense? And Father, would you foster in us a greater desire, greater than, than to walk or to see, but a desire for eternity, a desire for sin to be lifted off, the burden of sin to be cast away. And Lord Jesus, would you, by our perspective, no longer tarry, but return, Lord, to make all things new, we beseech. In your name, amen.